We totally agree with the desire of the government to extend the benefits of their taxpayer dollars to underprivileged groups. And construction companies have been doing this for decades. And certainly there's room for improvement. And I think the construction industry really just wanted more collaboration and just saying, hey, how about you ask us how we could improve things? Instead, this really felt imposed upon us. That's another word, imposed, exclusive, monopolistic. This BCIB uh, creation has, has caused huge difficulties for everybody because instead of just doing business the normal way they do and hiring and finding employees the normal way they do, they've got to go through this body who isn't a construction uh, employer. And it's just creating a huge amount of administrative difficulties. Uh, it's just a feeling of, of not being able to freely work on, on projects in BC that ultimately we're paying for. And those projects in my past, I've had no problem working on any of them. And now I'm having to make a choice of, of which company and which union I'm going to end up working for. Like what you've been doing for your entire career is uh, soon going to come to an end or you're going to have to go somewhere else to work. Hello and welcome to Inside Construction, a podcast from the British Columbia Construction Association. I'm your host, Chris Atchison, President of the BCCA. We're bringing you this podcast series as part of our advocacy work, seeking to highlight the key issues affecting employers in BC's construction industry. We'll meet British Columbians who are affected by these issues professionally and personally. With their help, we'll shed some light on what's working, what isn't, and how private and public sector stakeholders can come together to ensure BC's industry has what it needs to get the job done on time, on budget, and with the world-class outcomes we all expect. Today we're talking about British Columbia's unique Community Benefits Agreement, or CBA. At the federal, local, and provincial levels, Community benefits agreements are gaining traction with governments as a way to solve social issues. In their true form, they require government contractors to hire local and underrepresented groups. In July of 2018, the BC NDP government announced a new and very unique community benefits agreement, which in reality is a project labor agreement. Because of this BC CBA on designated public projects, and so far that includes the Petula Bridge, the Highway 1 4 laning project, the Broadway subway line expansion, and the Cowich and District Hospital replacement, workers must join one of the preferred unions affiliated with the BC building trades. To be clear, if you work for an open shop contractor or belong to another union, such as CLAC, you cannot work on these public projects without joining a union prescribed to you by the government. Your employer, for the purposes of this project, is now a newly created Crown Corporation and your union is one of those directly affiliated with the BC building trades. Your payroll and benefits now go through a newly created Crown Corp called BC Infrastructure Benefits Inc. or BCIB, not your employer. We're going to get deeper into this today to demonstrate how the new BC CBA will impact our industry and all of us as BC taxpayers. Let's first meet Mike Martins. He's the Director of Public Affairs for the Western Division of the Progressive Contractors Association of Canada. 
Mike can offer us some additional background on CBAs and how this one is different. Community benefits are um, not a new innovation in construction, but have really become more prominent in the in procurement in the last 10, 15 years. Their spirit is to try and leverage public procurement and taxpayer dollars that are being used on bridges and schools and other public projects to try and benefit underprivileged groups in society. And I think um, many, most people in construction agree with this this mandate and, and with this goal. The problem is sometimes with how it's delivered. And so just to understand how the different options are delivered, I'll just get into the background a little bit. One view of community benefits is that it's a mindset, that whenever you're doing anything, try and keep in mind people who are underprivileged. And maybe this is visible minorities, um, maybe this is the underemployed, um, traditionally marginalized groups um, in construction, that would be women and Indigenous people. And, And try and think about how you can leverage what you're doing, already doing, to benefit these other groups. Just have a mindset. So that's one level of community benefits or social procurement. Another level is formalizing that mindset and creating regulations and standards and and criteria that those who want to access taxpayer dollars, like contractors who bid for public work, and this could also be people who maybe bid on on delivering lunches for um, City Hall. Uh, It's not just construction, it goes broader than that, but anybody who's bidding on work for cities has to follow set rules and requirements that are set out in a community benefits agreement. And that's where we start getting into trouble because um, I think a lot of cities and, and governments want to have a standard form. They want to have standard regulations that apply across the board in almost any circumstance. And as you know as well or better than I do, construction is horrible for a cross the board standard because every project is different. And in BC, they have made a standard and they have made requirements regarding the number of women that should be hired, the number of First Nations, the number of apprentices. But the big problem with the BC Community Benefits Agreement is they've also articulated that the contractor gets their workers from a centralized source. And this is above and beyond what normal community benefits require. The the BC government has decided to partner with the legacy unions known as the building trades and and get them to provide the workers. And you don't necessarily know who those workers are. So if you're used to having a consistent workforce, then uh, the BC CBA is going to allocate half your workers to you. And that's the biggest problem with it. Um, and that is above and beyond what normal CBAs um, impose upon people who want to procure services from the government. Mike described the policy to me as exclusive and as a monopoly. He also agrees that in many ways, BC's Community Benefits Agreement is actually more like a traditional PLA or a project labor agreement. Uh, A PLA is basically an agreement and it's almost always done on projects where the building trades are involved. Not always, but almost always. And it's basically says, look, traditionally, a company is either a union, non-union, um, or progressive union. If the project owner, the government in this case, wants everyone to compete on that job, 
but they want to give building trades the work. Then they set up a project labor agreement so that any company can bid on that job. They will just be forced to use building trades as their labor force, but the company will not become a signatory to the building trades. And so when they leave that job, they can go back to using that regular workforce. So there's lots of creative ways you can do PLAs. You don't have to force people to use the building trades model if if they don't want to or if that doesn't work. But a project labor agreement just sets up special conditions for a particular project that supersede sometimes uh, labor agreements and collective agreements and set up a whole new parameters that everybody agrees upon. In BC, it's roughly the building trades represent 15% of the construction industry. So the average person can tell that this would be an unfair advantage to to give 15% of the industry a monopoly on on uh, on construction projects. Um, and so they hide it behind CBA language. Now, that doesn't mean that I, I don't think they want to do. I, I know for a fact that they want to do well by women and First Nations group and underprivileged groups. And so does the construction industry. It's the means by which they did that, by giving, believing that only the building trades could provide that that's where it becomes disingenuous. And and then you start to wonder whether or not the CBA was really intended. You know, I know people can have multiple motives at the same time. And so perhaps they had good motives and they said, well, while we're doing these good motives, let's benefit our friends at, this, at the building trades as well. That, that's how it comes across. So this CBA is really showing preference to a small proportion of the workforce. I asked Mike if there were other reasons why the construction industry might not be suited for this type of CBA. This is a pet project of mine to try and educate everybody, including inside the construction industry. When we're swimming in the water and we're drinking the water, we, we don't even notice the water. And I think what a lot of people forget to mention in the construction industry, because they just know it, but people outside the construction industry do not know that construction is temporary. If you're going to get full-time work in construction, you're going to have to move from project to project. The projects will end. They are temporary. You, you the, pro, the bridge project starts and ends later. And so if you think about those conditions, this, this movement and it's transitory and it's temporary, not only that, is on a given job. Let's say you're a laborer. You might be at the beginning of the job and the job's three years long, you might have work for the first six months, but you're not necessarily working for the whole duration because other trades will come in and work for their component and segment. And so all of these factor means there's a lot of variability. And when it comes to underprivileged groups, a, a critical factor for their success in any career is stability. Ideally, they would be going to the same place every day. Ideally, they would have consistent work hours, you know, they would be close to their home. Uh, these are all factors that are necessary for people who have had a hard time getting labor to having success. Uh, th this gets into a broader conversation about what we need to do to get underrepresented groups in. And the question is, CBAs really the answer or are there deeper answers? And I'd suggest that there's more deep and meaningful and Frankly, it's in the construction industry's interest to get more workers involved. We're going to have a huge shortage of workers. And so it's an all-hands-on-deck approach. So based on that response, Mike, do you think it's important then that, that CBAs be tailored to individual communities rather than a large region or a province? 
Well, that's really interesting. You hear the phrase community benefits agreements. Uh, we, For a community benefit agreement to really be a community benefit agreement, it should consult with the local community and be customized to each community. And it might be that in a community, employment might not be the issue. They might need a park or they might need, I don't know what, but that's the whole point. Talk to them. What we need to do is look at the specific circumstances in the community and say, whatever we're setting up, are we setting ourselves up for failure or are we actually setting up things that will actually benefit the community? BCCA's position on community benefits agreements is clear. First, we have been operating some of the most progressive workforce development programs for the construction industry for nearly 20 years. We're focused on bringing non-traditional workers into our industry and supporting them in building successful and rewarding careers. We've been addressing the skilled trade shortage since before most people even thought there was a skilled trade shortage, and we welcome all the partnerships and ideas that can help us attract and retain more people to our industry. But at the same time, we strongly oppose any practice or program that seeks to grant exclusive bidding rights to companies based upon any system of quotas or legislative wages within the province. And we support the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which gives every Canadian, construction workers included, the right to freedom of assembly. Forced unionization does not align with who we are as Canadians. We care so passionately about this that we went to court to fight it. Peter Gall is the lawyer who represented the BCCA, along with a coalition of about a dozen other stakeholder groups, contractors, and excluded unions who decided to fight against BC's unique community benefits agreements. What the contractors had to commit to was to get their labor from BC Infrastructures, Inc., a public corporation set up by the province. And it's BC Infrastructures, Inc., that has the collective agreement, this community benefits agreement with the building trades unions. And the contractors, as a tender requirement, have to commit to getting their labor through BC Infrastructures, Inc. And BC Infrastructures, Inc. is treated as the employer on these projects. So the contractors, they're doing the work they're getting their labor from BC Infrastructures, Inc. But for labor relations purposes, the employer is BC Infrastructures, Inc. And in that way, contractors who don't have relationships with the building trades unions are able to bid on these projects. But workers have to become members of the building trades to work on the projects. They may be uh, longtime employees of the contractors uh, who are either non-union or who are have relationships with other unions, but they have to renounce whatever uh, membership they have in another union and join the building trade unions to have any chance of working on these projects. And as well, because they would become new members of the building trades, They'd be down the uh, pole, so to speak, in terms of being able to be sent to work on these projects. Now, the contractors would have some ability to name request a few people, but the vast majority of workers they have to take from the hiring halls of the building trades unions. 
So the upshot of all of this is that workers are being compelled to join the building trades unions to work on public projects. And that engages the constitutional right under a charter of rights and freedoms of freedom of association. And the workers say that being forced to join the building trades unions to work on a public project is a violation of their constitutional right to freedom of association. What I want to touch on, Peter, is you've mentioned the, um, the right of freedom to association. And I think that's an important piece for us to, to maybe uh, come back to you on. And can maybe if you could explain uh, the right of freedom of association, how it works in Canada. The justification, the purported justification, is that this was the best way or a better way to meet certain employment objectives, training of uh, objectives of new construction workers and objectives relating to the hiring and entry into the construction uh, profession, so to speak, of First Nations and other unrepresented groups. So keep that in mind. That's the purported objective. How does freedom of association come into play? Well, there was a previous case, oh, some 20, 25 years ago now, coming out of Quebec, a case by the name of Advance Cutting and Coring. Now, Quebec has a legislative uh, scheme, so to speak, in the construction industry, where on all construction projects, whether they be public or private, workers have to belong to certain designated unions. So in our case, it's designated public construction projects by the, of the provincial government. In Quebec, it's all projects. And that was challenged under the charter, a direct challenge to that law as being unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court of Canada held that freedom of association also included the right not to associate. So being compelled to associate with certain unions in order to work in the construction industry was an infringement of the freedom of association rights of those workers. This is not a law like in Quebec. It's the exercise of a statutory discretion. But the charter still applies to that. On the one hand, you have to balance the objectives being served the stated objectives being served by infringing the freedom of association rights of these workers. And you have to balance that against the uh, freedom of association rights, the infringement, and see which, which side of the balance comes out. Now, I come back to the purported reasons, these employment objectives. We said these employment objectives are being currently met outside of the building trades unions, that open shop, that is non-building trades unions contractors are engaged in training, hiring First Nations and other underrepresented groups that typically in BC, that there are conditions in construction contracts requiring them to train and to hire uh, underrepresented groups. And all of that has worked very well. 
and associations such as yours, Chris, are heavily involved in training and em employment uh, initiatives such as the hiring of local workers or indigenous workers. So our argument in the case was these objectives, they're worthy objectives, but they all can be met and in fact are being met outside of a scheme like this. And so when you balance those objectives with the infringement of the freedom of association rights of workers, the balance clearly is tipped to the side of the worker. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll just come back to the case itself because there were a number of us who signed on to a petition. Uh, and, uh, you know, where does that case stand? Maybe if you could recap uh, uh, the process of the, of the petition and how it's played out thus far. Well, that petition was filed in court. Here, there's another, I guess, jurisprudential wrinkle to this. Increasingly, uh, the courts have said that if the essential character of the dispute is a matter arising in the labor relations context, it should be dealt with first by a labor relations tribunal. Now, what we said in this case is this scheme that the government has enacted does not involve the labor code. There is no alleged breach of the labor code. It's simply uh, an allegation that the minister exercised her discretion unreasonably, illegally, in instituting this tender requirement. So it's a straight challenge of a decision of the minister that doesn't involve the labor code. Now the court, and we went to the Court of Appeal, as you know, Chris, on this, the court said, well, even though it's the minister's decision that's in, at issue here, it all stems from a collective agreement requirement, and that's the requirement in the community benefits agreement between BC Infrastructures, Inc., and the building trades, that, that everybody who works under that collective agreement has to be a building trades member. So at root, there is this collective agreement requirement. And so the court held that at first instance, we had to pursue this claim that this was a violation of the charter at the Labor Relations Board. The point I want to make is there's been no ruling on the merits of the claim. There's only been a ruling on the jurisdiction, the appropriate jurisdiction, in terms of deciding the claim. And the courts have said, you should start first, we should start first at the Labor Relations Board. Obviously, this is a complex case where after two years, the court is still deciding where the argument should be heard. BCCA and our coalition strongly believe that this is not a case for the Labor Relations Board for all the reasons that Peter stated, but the Supreme Court didn't agree with that, so it drags on. The last person you'll meet today is Ryan DeForge, an equipment operator in BC and a CLAC union steward. CLAC is an independent, all-Canadian labour union that is not one of the preferred unions under the BC CBA so their members would have to join a preferred building trades union to work on BC's CBA projects. 
I've been with the union for about 17 years now. Spent most of my career in, in heavy industrials, uh, uh, civil projects. Uh, sea to Sky Highway, Portman Bridge, Pitt River Bridge, uh, lots of uh, lots of other um, mining background. And uh, currently, I am the site equipment trainer for uh, PRHP on the Site C project. I've been involved with uh, the CBAs here um, on and off uh, since they were first introduced. I've been uh, out to Victoria with CLAC representing the the workers that are going to be affected by these agreements being put into place. Ryan has built his construction career with CLAC. He's been given some great opportunities to grow and expand his skill set. The Sea to Sky Highway project, I was on the uh, Eagle Bluffs um, segment, so that would be segment one, uh, right near Horseshoe Bay. The company that I was working for, Peter Kewitt & Sons, they had a model of that the more that they can train you, the better of an employee you're going to be for them. So they gave you the opportunity to be able to move up in the ranks and be able to move on to whatever it is that you're that you were interested in doing at you know there was at one point of time where i even considered moving from heavy equipment to um to become an electrician which they would have had fully supported but i ended up doing other things but uh the feeling of not being restricted to what it is that i wanted to do with my career is is what really drew me to stay with them the possibilities of, of where I was going to go with my career was kind of unlimited at that point. But Ryan says all of this will change with the CBA in effect. Uh, it's just a feeling of, of not being able to freely work on, on projects in BC that ultimately we're paying for. Those projects in my past, I've had no problem working on any of them. And now I'm having to make a choice of, of which company and which union I'm going to end up working for. It makes you feel like, uh, like what you've been doing for your entire career is uh, soon going to come to an end or you're going to have to go somewhere else to work. So has the community benefits agreement thus far affected your ability to work on the infrastructure projects in the province that, that you've selected? Well, if we look at the current scopes of work that are in BC with uh, Site C, Coastal Gas Link, LNG Canada, Trans Mountain Pipeline, uh, these are all major infrastructure projects that have pulled the majority of all of our talent that we have in BC to these projects. And when CBAs uh, start coming through and we're limiting our workforce to only certain individuals going to these projects, while the majority of British Columbians are already on the other projects, what do we think is going to happen with the workforce? So all this language of, of hiring local and, and keeping trades in the community, like it's, it's just at a point where it's going to be an impossible task to accomplish to try and get talented workforce in order to be able to complete these projects on time and on budget. And then not to mention, like, look at BC, what kind of uh, situation we're sitting in here with the local weather events that we've had, you know, there is so much more infrastructure jobs that are going to be coming up that are going to need skilled trades workers. 
introducing the CBAs into into the industry right now, it's just it's just foolish. So Ryan, can you tell us why the right to freedom of association is important to you? Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm going to stick with uh, the union with a union that's taking care of me, right? I've worked uh, my entire career for the last 17, 17 years without without a hiccup. I'm not willing to to sit on a job board and and sit at home waiting for a call to go to work. I got food to put on my table. I've got three kids and a wife, and uh, I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep working. Ryan is just one of many who will feel the negative effects of the CBA. Let's bring back our first guest, Mike, to hear about how this not only impacts workers, but also inflates the cost of projects for the province. So you're a company that is used to working a certain way with certain workers. How much longer is it going to take you to get that job done if half your workforce is adjusted with people you've never worked with before? How long is it going to uh, take you to get those workers? You've never worked with BCI before. How long is that going to take? You're going to have to add uncertainty into your price. If you're used to charging out at, I don't know, let's just call it 100 bucks an hour, now you're going to go, well, I, how much longer? I don't know, I'll, but I, gotta, I can't afford to lose money on this. I'll, I'll charge out at $120. I'll estimate the number of hours, which I'll also inflate the number of hours. I'll go, it's going to take me longer, and I'm not going to get as much work done in every hour I work. So not only am I going to bid more hours, a job that I used to bid for 50 hours, now I'm going to bid for 60 hours. And those 60 hours are going to be at 120 bucks an hour. So you're well over a 20% increase. In fact, our research indicates for projects in Ontario um, where there's been more research and more of a history of what we call restricted tendering, which is, this is a version of, projects inflate as much as 30%. And, and this is why. Is, is, so there's another reason. It's not just risk that would adjust the price. That's one factor. The other factor is, as I mentioned before, this is a lot of headaches, especially for smaller companies, and they just won't bid. So if you normally on a highway segment would have 10 companies bidding, you might now have two or three. And as soon as those two or three bids, not only did they have to inflate their prices, but it's just less competition. They're like, well, we know there's going to be no low bidders. Let's not worry about that. Mike says that he would like to see more consultation on this matter. This is a huge industry and each part of the industry have different groups representing special interests uh, within that community. They're, they're the unique contributions that each segment of the construction community provides. And bringing all of these groups together to talk about solutions would be a great solution. And to show that there is respect. Um, I don't want to get too philosophical here, but there is a underlying philosophy behind um, union movements. And the assumption is that making profit and running a business and being a business person and being in management is somehow less than being a worker. And, and, And to be fair, I'm sure there are some in society who believe that the most dignified thing is running a business and then workers are somehow less and can be taken advantage of. But what we should be striving for and what I think a good government would do would be to realize both have tremendous value. Not One is not better than the other. And both are bringing significant contributions to the table. And so what I see is showing that they actually respect the business community, that the business community actually has 
legitimate concerns and a value that comes to the table and saying, look, we value you. Let's let's find the the insights and the truth that you can bring to the table and, and then encourage companies who might maybe, and I don't know how many there are, I don't know how many companies could actually not respect workers and still maintain their company, but if there are, encourage them to see, and let's also validate the concerns of workers. That's a legitimate thing. But to put the concerns of workers over the concerns of, of companies seems wrong to me. And that seems to be what this CBA is an example of. There are four projects currently operating under BC's controversial Community Benefits Agreement. From the outset in 2018, the resistance from industry against the CBA has been significant and organized, not only from the open shop contractors, which make up 85% of the industry, but from union contractors as well, including those whose forces are represented by the preferred unions of the BC building trades. One of BCCA's goals is to stop the CBA from being applied to more projects, and so far we've been successful. But following the recent election, with the NDP now having a majority government, there is always a risk that more projects will be added. We've seen a slowdown, and there is hope that this is an indication that the province is looking for more collaborative, productive and legitimate ways to diversify our industry in partnership with all employers and unions. Recently, work began on the Mills Memorial Hospital in Terrace, which is the largest government construction investment in the North, and which many thought would be a CBA project. But it's not a CBA project, and this is a big win for the North, Northern employers and workers, and the industry at large. We know that there are many other ways to achieve goals of local and diverse hiring that don't involve forcing workers to join a favoured union. We look forward to continuing to build an industry that works for everyone in partnership and collaboration without a project labour agreement loosely disguised as a CBA. That's all for this episode of Inside Construction. Let me leave you with this. The next time you're out and about, take a look around you at the built environment, the one that you rely on for everything that you do. Our roads, our hospitals, our schools, our bridges, and so much more beyond our critical infrastructure. Take a minute to think about the contractors, the skilled professionals, and the complex workforce ecosystem that's required to build it. To appreciate their abilities and their collective efforts, and to recognize their professions and their livelihoods. To understand that they take pride in what they do and have a deep commitment to build BC along with their own personal legacy. Their voices and their choices are meant to be reflected and represented in this podcast. Together, let's build a construction industry that works for everyone. Thank you for listening and tune in again to get inside construction.